0: So we are today um, finally coming back to the book of 1 Corinthians. So it has been um, seven weeks since our last message from 1 Corinthians. If you are are new to our church, I was going through a series uh, on the entire book, and we've made it through the first six chapters. And there are 16 chapters, so we have 10 more chapters to go. Um, we, we took a break uh, because of uh, my trip to New York for a little bit, and then we focused on fasting in the new year, but now we are coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm very, very excited to do that. Just to give a brief recap, because it might have gotten a little bit rusty, what happened in chapters 1 through 6. Um, in chapters 1 through 4, uh, primarily the issue there was division, and if you remember, um, so the Corinthian church was one that was really being influenced by the culture around them, uh, which is something that we all struggle with, the same temptation as well, right? But they were struggling and being influenced by the culture around them, and they were uh, being influenced by the Hellenistic culture of their time. And they were thinking that, you know, um, the wisdom of the Greeks and all of these different things, now that, that's really, really wise, And and part of that meant being eloquent. They were used to seeing these philosophers out in the marketplaces waxing eloquent about their philosophies. And and here comes Paul, who they viewed as really not all that eloquent. And so because Paul wasn't that eloquent according to the Greco-Roman standards, they kind of looked down on him. They were judging him by these worldly standards. They thought that they were spiritual but they were really worldly, actually. They were using the world standards to judge Paul. And Paul's saying, that's not very spiritual, in fact. The gospel is what is spiritual. Now, in chapter 5, uh, Paul addresses a case of sexual immorality within their church. There was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, um, probably his mother-in-law. Uh, he, was, uh, in, he was fornicating with her. He was not... Married to her. It was his father's wife, but he was sleeping with her. And the Corinthians were tolerating this. They were tolerating this. Because this was probably tied into their view of hyper-spirituality. Which went something like, you know, we're, we're so spiritual that what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter. Again, this is affected by the Greek philosophy of those days. A certain, like, stoicism or asceticism. It doesn't matter, the physical. It's not that big of a deal. What matters is being a spiritual person. So this guy, he's sleeping with his mother-in-law. It's just a physical thing. It's not a big deal. Just just forget about that. Paul says, no, that is not spiritual. How can you allow this person to be in a relationship like that? You should hand this person over to Satan. In other words, um, excommunicate this person from the church in the hopes that he would realize that he is walking in grave sin and turn back to God. And then in chapter 6, the first half, Paul brings up the lawsuits that were going on in their church. He was like, you guys are spiritual, but you guys are suing each other? You guys are dragging each other to court in front of these non-believers? You're suing each other. What kind of spirituality is that? If you truly were spiritual, if you really had the Holy Spirit, then don't you have the wisdom of God to kind of arbitrate and to help people to work out their differences within the church community, but instead you drag them out to the people's court, Judge Judy, whatever, and you try to handle it there, and you make a disgrace of Christianity in front of all these people. That's what they're going to think Christianity is about? That's not spiritual. And then in the second half of chapter six, he goes back again to the issue of sexual morality, and he says, man, even. I hear that some of you Are even visiting the prostitutes in Corinth. Now remember, Corinth was a city that was very, very licentious. Prostitution was rampant in this city. And he was saying, within the church, there are those of you who frequent the prostitutes. How can you guys do that? And remember, this is again them thinking what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. It's like an appetite food for the stomach and stomach for food. God's gonna destroy them both. What's the big deal? And Paul's saying, No, it is a huge deal. Don't you know that when you get married and you enter into sexual intimacy with your spouse, you become one? Before the Lord, something happens, you become one with that person. Now you're gonna go and become one through the act of sex with a prostitute, and then become one with another prostitute, and it, it, you're becoming a monstrosity. That is not what's supposed to happen. You are one with your spouse. You can't just go out there and sleep around. What you do with your body does matter. So you see, these Corinthians just had this totally distorted view of spirituality. It was very ascetic, very, um, uh, very stoic, influenced by you know, Diogenes or all these different, different philosophers. The physical doesn't matter. It's bad. It's secondary. It's low class. Being a spiritual person is what matters. Paul says, no, no, what we do with our bodies does matter. We're created spirit and body. So chapters one through six, we took a break at a great time actually from 1 Corinthians because chapters one through six is like Paul coming in and he greets them, he gives them a little bit of encouragement because he meant that there were things to encourage them about, but then he had to address a lot of these issues that were really you know, burning in Paul's heart. He's like, man, you guys, we got to talk about these things, okay? Now that he's kind of gotten that out of the way and talked about these things that he wanted to talk about, in chapter seven, it starts off, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So what's happening here is that Paul's saying, okay, I've gotten out what I had to say in chapters one through six. Now... You Corinthians also wrote me a letter. You had a bunch of questions for me. And um, the rest of 1 Corinthians is going to be, for the most part, Paul answering their questions and talking about them. So this was actually a great, great place to take a break. Now we're coming back to this now. And Paul begins with their questions. Now let me say this. Just a, a, a warning here, if there are any parents, any, any young kids here, that today's message is... PG-13, I would put it that way, PG-13, I think it will be academic and clean and very, very appropriate, but the subject matter inherently is, I would say, PG-13, okay, so just um, keep that in mind, and if you need to make some adjustments, feel free to do so, Uh, but today's message is on, on marriage, sex, things like that, so let's get into it, all right, so in, in verse 1 here, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, um, what Paul is saying here is that, and this is in quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Probably, now in the Greek there's no quotes, right? So you've got to kind of figure this out, right? But it's probably a saying of the Corinthians or something that were, they were thinking. Kind of like, Food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. In chapter 6, they were thinking it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, Again, they were looking down on the physical act of sex as something that is unimportant. It's not something that's important. We're spiritual beings. They might have even looked at Paul, who was single at this time, and, and used him as proof. Say, hey, see, Paul, you're single. So isn't that a really good thing? Look at all that you can do for God. Therefore, it is, it's actually good to be single. It is good not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, Paul probably was married at one point. There's debate about this, but he probably was married. And then maybe his wife passed away. Or maybe, you know, when he saw Jesus on the Damascus Road and he said, I'm a Christ follower now. His wife said, you're crazy. You know, what happened? You were a Pharisee. We were persecuting these crazy Christians a sect. I'm leaving you. Who knows what happened? But he probably was married before, but at this point, he is single. And now the Corinthians there are saying, you know, it's, it's just good. We should just avoid this, having sexual relations. We don't need that. We are spiritual people. Again, being influenced by Hellenistic thought. Now, what does Paul say? How does he answer this? He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What does Paul say here? He says, because there's a lot of sexual temptation out there, a lot of sexual immorality. Again, Corinth, prostitution, all sorts of stuff going on there. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, I don't believe that this means you should get married. As if Paul is saying, well, there's temptation out there, so you should get married. Um, This word have here, when Paul says each man should have his own wife, um, I believe refers to actually sexual intimacy. That's what he's talking about. I think that's what it was more... um, This is how it was commonly used in that time in the Greek. In fact, earlier in chapter 5, verse 1, when that man was sleeping with his father's wife, Paul writes there, for a man has his father's wife. It is the same verb that is being used there. So I think what Paul is talking about here is what he's saying is that, no, within marriage, there should be sexual relations, So the Corinthians, what was happening here, that there were some there who were thinking, you know what, we're married, I'm married, I have a spouse, but because we're spiritual people, we should just forget about sex in our marriage. It's just, you know, we don't need to do that. We're spiritual, that's an earthly, physical thing. I mean, that's what animals do, right? They just, you know, that's a physical thing. We're not animals, we're spiritual. We don't need that. Paul is saying, no, We do need that. You should have sex within marriage. Why? Because it prevents temptation. It prevents the temptation to sexual immorality. Now, some people interpret this as saying, you know what? Marriage is kind of like, um, you know, that's all marriage is really good for, is to prevent sexual temptation. That's what it's supposed to be for. It's actually better to be single But if you can't, then you should get married. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Um, Paul is just addressing their specific mindset of you could be married and not have sex within marriage. Marriage itself is good. And Paul talks about that in other places. It's a special thing. Being single is a special thing as well. But in this particular instance, he's saying in marriage, no, you should have a healthy sex life within your marriage. One thing that it does is it prevents temptation out there. Um, In verse 9, later on, Paul talks about us burning with passion. He says that's, that's the way most of us are made. We burn with passion. In other words, we have this desire for intimacy with another person. And this is the way that God has made us. And it's a good thing. God created humanity like this. It's a very good thing. It's a natural thing. But it's important to have um, sexual intimacy within marriage because this is the way that we are made. Um, and, and in fact, there may have been Corinthians, part of the reason some of them may have been going to see prostitutes is because they weren't having intimacy in their marriages. So, this, so they were there ah, physical stuff, it's not a big deal. We don't need to have it in our marriage. But then because they burn with passion, they go, oh, you know, I feel this urge. I'm just going to go see a prostitute. And Paul's like, no, (laughs) no, no, no. This is all wrong. You've got this all wrong. Within marriage, there should be a healthy sexual intimacy. And that prevents temptation to go into other relationships or fornication. Um, Let me say this as a note. This never, a lack of sexual intimacy in a marriage is never, ever an excuse for sexual immorality, for having sex outside of marriage. Um, it's not like it's okay to say, oh, you see, well, my spouse is, is, is not having sex with me. So therefore, I'm going to go see these prostitutes. It's never an excuse. Earlier in chapter six, Paul said, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, never. Paul says to them, No, no, this is not okay. It is not an excuse to go out there and visit the prostitutes. If you do experience temptation, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians also, he told them, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's never an excuse. Paul's saying sex within marriage is good. It is healthy. If it's not happening, you do not have an excuse to go out there and look for it somewhere else. We need to address it within marriage and pursue a healthy marriage. One side note. Let me say this as well. Um, I believe in short engagements. I think that's like a secondary application of this. Uh, you know, if I, like talk to someone, say, like, oh, you're engaged. Like, yeah, we're engaged. Oh, when are you getting married? If you were to say, oh, in four years. I'm like, four years? You burn with passion, <laughs> Paul says. If you, if you found the right person and you know you want to marry this person and that person knows they want to marry you, then I am a big fan of not letting that engagement go too long because you burn four years of burning with passion. You're going to burn like a candle down to the very like bottom, right? You're going to burn. I'm I'm all for shorter engagements. I think there's a real wisdom in that. So, um, so what what does Paul here say now? Furthermore, in verse three, he says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise. The wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Let me stop there for a moment. Um, This is how important this is. Paul actually calls it a right. He says, you have conjugal rights in marriage. A husband has conjugal rights from his wife. The wife has conjugal rights from her husband. And he says, this is really, really important. When two became one, you entered into this special relationship and and you have this responsibility, which is a joy and a privilege of providing conjugal rights for each other. And Paul says, don't deprive each other of this and and what's really uh, really sticks out is this word deprive actually when he says don't deprive one another it's actually the same word in greek that pops up in chapter 6 verse 8 in the lawsuits when he says there but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers that's the same word in greek in other words paul's saying don't cheat your spouse out of sexual intimacy. Don't defraud. Don't cheat your spouse out of that. It is that important. Husbands and wives share a mutual obligation to fulfill one another sexually. This is extremely important within marriage. Now, it's really, it's really important, though, to add. Well, what this means, then, is a few things. It means, one, um, practical applications, sex should never be weaponized should never never weaponize it like oh you know you said what about my mom well you ain't you ain't seeing me in the bedroom for the next month right like no no we 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 shouldn't weaponize it right this doesn't mean that like it's always easy like if you had a huge fight with your spouse right not an easy time to then go into sexual intimacy. We understand that, right? That's, that's realistic. That's real life. That's, that's not easy. But it shouldn't be weaponized and used as a bargaining chip. That's not healthy. It also means that sex should not be neglected because of the busyness of life. If you're married... You get busier. Some of you, if you have kids, life gets really busy. You're you're here in in the Bay Area. You might be really busy with a career and family stuff, maybe taking care of your parents. There's so many things in life that can make life so busy that can be easy to say, well, you know, it's been a few weeks, and then before you know it, it's been a few months, and then sex gets neglected. Um, uh, Paul's saying, no, it's too important to neglect. It's something that you really need to guard your relationship and that's a part of your relationship joyfully. Now, this does not mean that sex should ever be coerced from your spouse. It should never, ever be coerced. Um, it should never, ever be something that you force. It is something that is meant to be offered freely and joyfully. You're not supposed to take this passage and use it like a cudgel or you know, and just hammer your spouse with this. You see what Paul says? You see what Paul says? That's, that's not, you can have a discussion about this passage and seek God's heart and his will together. But sex is something that should be joyfully and freely given within a marriage relationship, never, ever coerced. Paul goes on here, um, and you know, let me say this too. For many people nowadays who think that, you know, Christianity is something that is oppressive, to women, right? And you hear that a lot of days, a lot of that nowadays, right? That's a very, you know, um, male chauvinist type thing or whatnot. But listen to the mutuality of these verses. Wives, your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. Husbands, your body is not your own. It belongs to your wife. Now, think about the fact that this is 2,000 years ago. In Roman times, the Roman Empire, where it was super normal for a man to have a wife who would take care of housework, bear children, raise the children, but then keep concubines for sexual pleasure. That was super normal in those times. For, for somebody to hear something like Paul saying, no, man, your body is not your own. Your wife has authority over it. This is This is mind-blowing for those times. The teaching of the Bible, actually God's design, um, the teaching that men, but not just men, but women, women are just as much made in the image of God, was revolutionary in elevating the worth and dignity of women in ancient times. It was so counter-cultural, the mutuality that Paul describes here. And that was a part of God's design. So Paul says, don't deprive one another. Don't cheat each other out of this important thing in marriage. It is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But by the way, it also protects you from the sexual immorality that is out there. So he says, don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. So, Paul here he he does allow some room for abstinence within marriage. He says, "You know, yeah, sure, you can do that sometimes. Just withhold, you know, and not have sex for a while. But it's got to be mutually agreed upon, and you got to have a purpose, like devoting yourselves to prayer." So you know, it's probably this rhythm of life where like, hey, let's enter into a season of really seeking God through prayer and we're going to put a lot of our regular routines of life on hold to to devote ourselves more to prayer. Kind of like we did with fasting a couple of weeks ago. We cut out social media. We cut out certain types of food so we could spend more time in prayer, reading of the word of God. Maybe next year we'll add something else to it or maybe not, okay? Uh, But for them, that's something that they did. Paul's saying, yeah, that's, that's okay. You can do that, but it's got to be temporary. It's got to be mutually agreed upon, but then you got you to come back together again. This is not a permanent thing like the asceticism that you see around here. This is a concession. Sure, sometimes it's okay, but it's not a command. This is not something that is normal or normative. So he says, come back together. Now, in verse seven, Paul says, I wish... That all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There's that burn with passion again. Now, so Paul here is saying, you know what? Being single is a really good thing. In fact, I wish everybody could be single like me, Paul is saying. Now, on this issue of singleness, which is a good thing as well, I'm going to get into in the second half, later on in chapter 7, probably in a couple of weeks. So we're going to focus more on that then. But Paul's saying being single is a good thing. But here's the thing. Being single is good, but you need to have a gift for that. What gift is that? The gift of celibacy. Now, that's one gift that if you ever got, that's the one you hope came with a gift receipt, right? That's all of us. No, Lord, not the, give me prophecy, tongues, whatever. Administration, not the gift of celibacy, right? If you, th- if you think that, which is how most people think, that means you burn with passion. You, don't, you probably don't have that gift, right? It could come later. could come later, maybe, maybe not. But you burn with passion. So Paul's saying this um, celibacy is, is a good thing, but you need to have the spiritual gift of that. Now, if you're married, you certainly don't have that gift, okay? This is, sex belongs within marriage. It's a good thing. Now, you know, it's good to be single. It's good to be celibate. But you need to have the gift from God to be able to do that so that singleness is not this overwhelming burden. So that if you have passion, you don't burn with passion. You have the grace of God to be able to overcome it so that uh, it's not something that's insurmountable in your life. Now, so he says to these people, now he's addressing, he's going to address three different groups here going out. First, he says to the unmarried and the widows, right? So to to those who are single, um, to those who were married at one point, but their spouse passed away and now are single, all the different singles. He says, you know what? It's good for you to stay single like me. Sure, that's a good thing. But again, you need the spiritual gift of celibacy. If you cannot exercise self-control, then you should get married. Okay? Don't end up going out there to the prostitutes, which is what was happening among some people. If you burn with passion, get married. Okay? Now, in verse 10, he goes on to the next group, to the married. Now, the married are Christians who are married. These are Christian relationships. We know this because later on he addresses Christians that are married to non-Christians. We'll get to that in a moment. But he says here, "...to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife." Now, let me say this too here. When it says, not I, but the Lord, what Paul is saying there by that is um, the Lord, God, has already specifically spoken on this topic. Um, Don't get divorced. Don't separate from your spouse. Where did he say that? Well, Genesis 2, two become one. Jesus said it in the Gospels don't get divorced. Jesus referred back to creation to the book of Genesis. So it's not me, Paul saying, the Lord has already said this, the Lord has already spoken about this, right? And he says, you should not get divorced. You should not get separated. Now, um, why does it say wives shouldn't get separated from their husbands? Husbands shouldn't get divorced? Because, well, it might have been because, you know, in Jewish culture, only husbands were allowed to divorce. So the husbands would be the one that filed for divorce. But in the Greco-Roman times, a wife, if she just leaves her husband, you're, for all intents and purposes, divorced as well. So they're, they're really the same thing here, right? So Paul is just saying, don't get divorced. Don't separate from your spouse. This is based upon creation. Two have become one. Do not separate. If that is the case, if that's the case, Why in verse 11 does Paul say, but if she does, if she does separate from her husband, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That's weird, isn't it? You're saying don't get divorced. Don't leave your spouse. But if you do, stay unmarried or get back together. Which which is it? I thought you said don't do it. Why are you saying now, well, but if you do, Right, It's like if I, if I said to my kids, kids, no sweets after nine o'clock at night, okay? But if you're going to disobey daddy, don't eat the chocolate fudge ice cream. That's mine. You could have the strawberry. You could have the vanilla. You could have the pudding pops. You could have the sorbet. You could have any of those. Just don't eat the chocolate fudge ice cream, okay? What do you think's going to happen? Like, okay, dad, we get what you're saying I think. like right, talk about mixed messages. What is Paul saying here? Now this is this is where um, this is where the re- scripture is rooted in reality. It lives in the real world. It, it, what Paul is saying here, I believe, is this. Simply put it's this. Hey, don't get divorced. Divorce is bad unless there's a really legitimate reason like You know, adultery, Um, you know, I I think um, uh, abuse, like if you are in danger, like there's certain situations, right? But remember the Corinthians, they were thinking like, ah, marriage, I'm married to God, Marriage? there's going to be no marriage in heaven. So what's the big deal? Maybe we just get divorced and just forget about it all, right? I could be single like you, Paul. Paul's saying, no, stay married, stay married. But what Paul is saying here is like, he's saying this, is basically two things. Don't get divorced. Don't separate from your spouse, that's not good. That's bad. But if you do, don't make bad worse. Don't make a bad situation even worse. If, you're, if you separate from your spouse, that's, that's not God's will. That's not God's design. But if you do end up in that situation, don't go and make the situation worse by going and marrying somebody else or going to the prostitutes. Why? Because... Even when you've separated from your spouse, you, you and your spouse, the two have become one, right? You have become one. When you separated, that's not good. But the two are still one. Now, if you separate from your spouse and you go marry somebody else and therefore concomitantly have sex, two become one again. You're becoming one with somebody else, which is even worse. Don't do that. It's not good to separate. Don't separate. But if you do separate, don't go make it worse by becoming one with somebody else. I believe that that's what's happening here. This is why when we look at Jesus' teachings in the gospel, uh, for example, Mark, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And again, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We kind of we kind of separate it. Sometimes we think, oh, yeah, Jesus is saying don't get divorced. That's, that's mainly what he's saying. Yeah, he's saying don't get divorced, but also when you marry another, you're committing adultery. Right? That act of marrying another, that act of two becoming one again with another person, now you're, now you're committing adultery. Right? So there is a, a, a two-part process to this. So Paul is saying... Don't get divorced. But if you do, do not become one with another person. Now, last section here. We're coming up on on the close here. Verses 12 through 16. He says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now let me address this again for a moment here. I Paul, what do you mean, I not the Lord? Oh, Paul, you're saying this, not God? So does that mean this is not important? Or this is just, you know, um, your opinion. This is not authoritative. This is not scripture. Is that what you mean by that, Paul? No. What Paul is saying here, just like earlier, what he's saying is God has not given a, an explicit command concerning what I'm about to say right now. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you won't find what I'm about to talk about in the scriptures. Like in the Old Testament, Jesus didn't talk about it. So it's me talking about this. God hasn't talked about this before, but this doesn't mean Paul is saying what he is saying is any less authoritative. Later on in, in verse 39, uh, no, uh, later on near the end of the chapter, he says, he gives his teaching, he says, and I believe I have the spirit of God. Right? So, so we believe that Paul's teaching is authoritative because God is speaking through Paul. This is actually why I don't really like red-letter Bibles. You know red-letter Bibles? The ones where all the words of Jesus are in red? As if like, oh, those are the important parts? What Jesus said? No, all of it is God's Word. The parts in red as well as the parts in black. (laughs) All of it is the Word of God, no less the Word of God. So I'm not a big fan of red-letter Bibles. You don't don't have to throw your red-letter Bibles out. I'm not a big fan of it because all of it is Scripture. All of it is the word of God. That's what Paul means here by that. God has not specifically talked about it, but I'm going to talk about it, and we know that Paul's teaching is scripture as well. So, now to the rest. These are marriages where a Christian is married to a non-Christian, to an unbeliever. I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, And he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, um, what's going on here? There were Corinthians. There were people in the Corinthian church who became Christian. Okay, they became Christian. And they say, oh my gosh, I've become a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus, but my spouse isn't. I became a Christian, but my wife isn't. What should I do? Maybe I should leave my wife. Maybe I should divorce my spouse because now I'm a follower of Jesus, but my spouse isn't. How's this going to work? No, I can't. I can't be spiritual. I can't be a follower of Jesus if my spouse is not a Christian. So therefore, maybe I should just divorce and leave that person. That's what some people were saying. Paul is saying, no, don't do that. Stay as you are. If your spouse is willing to live with you, unlike maybe, maybe Paul's spouse. What? You're going fi- to become a Jesus follower? I'm out of here, right? Um, but if, you're, if it's not like that, if your spouse is willing to stay with you, Paul's saying, stay with your spouse. Stay with your spouse. That's a good thing. Why? Because marriage is sacred. Two have become one. That marriage is still marriage. Do not leave your spouse. If your spouse is willing to stay with you, honor, holy matrimony. Um, now, please, please understand that this is not a, an experience for what we call missionary dating. Oh, does that mean then I can date somebody who is not a Christian? I'm a Christian, but I could, like Paul's saying, oh, maybe, maybe I could date somebody and then, and then God will work through me to, to touch that person. No, later in verse 39 of the same chapter Paul says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So Paul later on says, oh, your spouse dies? You can remarry, but make sure that person is a believer. Because, as Paul has said earlier, what, what fellowship do light and darkness have together, right? You need to be in marriage with somebody who is also following Christ and that you can follow Christ together. This is not an excuse for missionary dating What this is, though, is preserving the sanctity of marriage. If you are already married, one of you became Christian while you were married, don't break apart the oneness that has taken place through marriage if your spouse is willing to stay with you. Because, Paul says, and now these verses are wonky, 14, right? The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, Unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Your children are holy. What does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, automatically everybody else becomes Christian in my family? If I'm a Christian, Does, does that what it mean? is that what it means? Now, this language is difficult here. But just to, to, to make it real simple, I believe what Paul is saying, what God is saying through him is that, hey, have hope in what God can do through you. How God can work through you in touching your unbelieving spouse, in touching your unbelieving kids, so that one day they may know the Lord. Stay together. You're married. Stay together and have hope. Pray for that. Seek to shine the light of Christ to them so that one day they may know the Lord. I've experienced this in my own family in different ways. I was the first Christian in my family. I got saved because somebody brought me to youth group. I became a Christian in my teens. First one in my family. But then eventually, over time, as I shared the gospel with my family, my dad became a Christian. He got lung cancer and he he really got sick and he, he realized his mortality. And I shared the gospel with him. And eventually he put his faith in Jesus. He trusted in the Lord before he passed away. Then my grandfather, as I shared the gospel with him, one day on his deathbed, he was maybe a week away from passing away or a month away. And I was talking with him. I said, Grandpa, you got to believe in Jesus. He goes, I already believe in Jesus. I said, what? When did you believe in Jesus? He goes, yeah, I believe in Jesus now. I just, I put my faith in him. I was like, praise the Lord. My grandpa believed in Jesus. Then my mom, um, during her time of, of struggling with Parkinson's, also came to know Christ through not just my evangelism to her, but also other people around her and the churches that she visited and different things. God worked in her. And now I believe my children, the grace of God is coming through me and my wife and, and touching my children and leading them to the Lord. The Holy Spirit can do that through you. Paul is saying, have hope. Have hope in what God can do. But Paul says in verse 15, if your unbelieving spouse just insists on separating from you, is determined to leave you, maybe like Paul's own wife was, is determined to do that, he says, you're not bound to your spouse. It's, it's okay. There, there's going to come a certain point, and, and where that is takes wisdom to know, right? There may come a certain point where you just have to let go of the marriage because the other person is determined to leave you, to abandon you, to walk away from that marriage. And Paul's saying, it's it's okay. You do not have to say, I am going to force this. God is going to happen. I cannot let go of this no matter what. This happens in the world all the time now. When people come to know Christ in certain countries, in certain cultures, They may be ostracized by their family. Their family may even try to kill them because of their new faith. It happens all the time around the world right now. And Paul's saying, if you're in a situation where your spouse refuses, absolutely refuses to stay with you, it's okay. God wants you to be at peace. He wants you to be at peace. Now, this doesn't mean... Man, you know, I just don't get along well with my spouse. I want to be at peace. I'm going to leave my spouse. That's not not what Paul is saying here. In a situation where they're determined to leave, you can, at times, it it may come to a point where you let them go. Now, when is that? Wisdom is needed for that, right? Wisdom is needed in, in so many of the different situations here, which is why we're also here as a church, And I want to say that if any of you are are having marital issues or things that you need to talk about to to find a godly couple in our church to talk to or to come and talk to me and Christine, we'd be happy to talk with you because I know a lot of these things require wisdom and are difficult, but that's what the church family is here for as well, to help you to navigate these different things. Brothers and sisters, um, uh, marriage, the big picture here is Marriage is a sacred thing. Paul is saying, no, stay in the relationship that you're in. Trust in the Lord. And within those relationships, sex is a wonderful, beautiful thing that is meant to not only safeguard the marriage, but it is a picture of Christ in the church, of the intimacy that we um, all long for and that can ultimately only be fulfilled in Christ.